you will turn from your sin, if you will repent, then it doesn't matter how bad the sin, it doesn't matter how frequently you have sinned, there's grace. God will give you new life in Christ. He will forgive your sins by His grace. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom continues with part eight of his current series, War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict. We're examining what James 4, verses 1 through 10 says about conflict. Today, you'll learn about the grace of God. You'll be greatly encouraged by the rich truths of God's Word. And if, through the series, you've come to realize you struggle with the guilt of personal conflict and an argumentative spirit, and have repented from your sin, then James wants you to know that God acts in grace. It is in His character to be gracious and merciful. Well, friend, let's open our Bibles now and join Tom with today's message on The Word Unleashed. Augustine said, listen, God, if you don't act, if you don't in grace empower me, I cannot obey you. Oh, holy God, when your commands are obeyed, it is from you that we receive the power to obey them. Some of you who are familiar with that period of history know that Augustine's arch rival was a British monk by the name of Pelagius. Pelagius read this statement in the Confessions and absolutely hated it because he saw it as an assault on human goodness, on human freedom, and on human responsibility. Pelagius' favorite saying was this, if I ought, I can. If I ought, I can. Augustine, on the other hand, argued exactly the opposite. Augustine said that man has no capacity to obey God, including even the command to believe in Christ. And that if we are to have any hope of obeying God, then God himself must act and empower us to do it. But God, God does act. James wants us to know that he acts in grace because it's his character to be gracious. Scripture tells us, by the way, this is true of all of the members of the Trinity, as you would expect It's true of the Father, 1 Peter 5.10. He's called the God of all grace. It's true of the Son in Acts 15.11. We are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. It's true of the Spirit. Hebrews 10.29 calls Him the Spirit of grace. You see, God the Father is the fountain of grace. God the Son is the channel through which God's grace arrives in our world. And the Holy Spirit is the applier or bestower of grace personally and individually. But God. Notice the third facet of this amazing saying, but he, that is God, gives a greater grace. He gives. You know, God's giving of grace started to us when there was no world, no universe, no time, and no space. In fact, there was absolutely nothing but God. There was nothing but God. 
You see, it was grace and grace alone that lies behind God's eternal choice of us. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes to his young son in the faith, and in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says this, God saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, listen to this, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. God's grace began in your life before you were ever created. It began in your life before there was anything but God. God began to show you grace by graciously choosing you to be his own. And then, as Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of time came, After the world was created, when the right time came, God sent his son into the world. And when God sent his son into the world to die as our substitute, that too was pure grace. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says it's by the grace of God that Christ tasted death for us. And then fast forward the real to today, to your life and my life. In time, in our lives, when God interrupted our lives, and as Ephesians 2, 5 says, made us alive, when he granted us repentance and faith, when he declared us righteous, when he adopted us into his family, when he set us apart for himself, that moment in time, that event that we call salvation, that too was all of grace. Of course, all of us know Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, that is the entire act of salvation, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. We understand that, don't we? That God's grace started in eternity past. It brought Christ to the earth and in our own lives. It interrupted our lives and brought salvation to us. But listen. God's grace doesn't merely extend into eternity past. God's grace for you and me extends into eternity future. We're very familiar with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, but listen to verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he made us alive, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God will spend eternity lavishing us with grace. To quote Newton, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise, praise for his grace, than when we first begun. But look again at James chapter 4, verse 6. The Greek word for gives is translated in the present English tense. It's also in the present tense in the Greek, but we could translate it a little differently. We could say it this way. He is giving greater grace. It means it's constant. It's constantly occurring, and it's now. You see, not only did God show us grace in eternity past, not only in sending Christ, not only at the moment of salvation, and not only will there be grace in eternity future, but right now, today, God is constantly giving us an ongoing supply of grace. Because not only were we chosen by grace and saved by grace, but we have an ongoing need 
for grace to live out our Christian lives, and God is continually giving us a supply of grace. John Blanchard, commentator on the book of James, tells the story of an artist, an artist who submitted a painting to an art exhibition, and the painting was of Niagara Falls. But the artist failed to give the painting a title. And so as the organizers of the event saw this painting without a title, they decided until the artist could make it to the painting himself that they would give it a title of their own. They looked at that painting of the mighty Niagara pouring over millions of gallons a second of water, and they named it with these three simple words, more to follow. Blanchard writes, those surging waters had poured down for countless years and had been harnessed to bring light and heating, power and comfort to multitudes of people, yet there was more to follow. So it is with the grace of God. You see, grace from God flows to us as a mighty spiritual Niagara rushing over our souls every day. As Annie Johnson Flint writes, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more grace when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we've exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limits His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. But he gives. Briefly look at the fourth facet of this gem of divine grace. But he gives a greater grace. Greater, of course, is a comparative, but it immediately raises the question, greater than what? Greater than our sin. Greater than our sin of quarreling and arguing and fighting. Greater than our willingness to live at times to pursue our cravings and our pleasures. Greater than our acts of spiritual adultery against God. Greater even than God's jealousy. God's grace is always greater than our need. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1, verse 14, the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. We understand abundant, but it's more than abundant. It's rich, it's lavish, it's bottomless, it's extravagant, it's inexhaustible. God's grace is greater. It's greater than the guilt of our sin. I've been reading the prophet Isaiah And I love the way Isaiah puts it in the first chapter of his prophecy, verse 18. Come now, he says to Israel and to us as well, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet. You see, in the ancient world, the darkest stain that they could produce was from the darkest dye that they produced, and that was scarlet. And he says, if your soul is stained, the absolute darkest that it can be stained they'll be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Listen, I don't know what guilt for sin you bear this morning. I don't know how you stand before God in terms of 
how you have sinned and how much guilt you have amassed before him. But I can tell you this, the grace of God is greater than whatever guilt you have amassed, you have accumulated. Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. If you will turn from your sin, if you will repent, then it doesn't matter how bad the sin, it doesn't matter how frequently you have sinned. There's grace. God will give you new life in Christ. He will forgive your sins by His grace. God's grace is greater than the guilt of our sin. But God's grace is also greater than the power of our sin. I love Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, where Christ is described this way, as he who loosed us, released us from our sins in his own blood. In his death, we get the grace of Christ, and part of that grace is the grace not only to overcome our guilt, but also to overcome the power of sin in our lives. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I don't know what sin you believe you are entrapped in, that you are enslaved to, but there is grace that is greater, enabling, empowering grace that can set you free from that slavery. You don't have to be a slave anymore. Paul says in Romans that you have been freed. Grace greater than the power of our sin. God's grace is also greater than our trials. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes about his trial. He calls it his thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 7, he says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he had received, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Here's a trial in Paul's life. We don't know what this thorn was. We can conjecture it may have been the leader of the revolt in Corinth, a false teacher attacking and accusing Paul. Could have been a physical issue perhaps. We can't be absolutely certain, but it doesn't matter for the point that he's making. Notice verse 8. Concerning this thing, whatever this trial in his life, whatever this thing that both God and Satan had brought, Satan under God's control. He said, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. It was in college that I first read Charles Haddon Spurgeon's comments on this verse. And I've read them many times since. Listen to what he wrote. He said, I have often read in scripture of the holy laughter of Abraham when he fell upon his face and laughed, but I do not know that I ever experienced that laughter till a few evenings ago when this text came home to me with such sacred power as literally to cause me to laugh. I'd been looking it through, looking at its original meaning, trying to fathom it, till at last I got hold of it this way. My grace, says Jesus, is sufficient for you. And it looked almost as if it were meant to ridicule my unbelief, For surely the grace of such a one as my Lord Jesus is indeed sufficient for so insignificant a being as I am. And then he gives a couple of illustrations that came to his mind. Listen to what he writes. It seemed to me as if some tiny fish, being very thirsty, was troubled with the fear of drinking the river Thames dry. 
And Father Tim said to him, poor little fish, my stream is sufficient for you. Put one mouse down in all the granaries of Egypt where they were the fullest after seven years of plenty and imagine that one mouse complaining that it might die of famine. Cheer up, says Pharaoh, poor mouse, my granaries are sufficient for you. Imagine a man standing on a mountain and saying, I breathe so many cubic feet of air in a year, I'm afraid that I shall ultimately inhale all the oxygen which surrounds the globe. Surely the earth on which the man would stand might reply, my atmosphere is sufficient for you. Let him fill his lungs as full as ever he can. He will never breathe all the oxygen, nor will the fish drink up all the river Thames, nor the mouse eat up all the stores in the granaries of Egypt. Listen to his application. With such a redeemer to rest in, how dare I for a moment think that my needs cannot be supplied? If our needs were a thousand times larger than they are, we would not approach the vastness of his power to provide. The Father has committed all things into his hands. Doubt him no more. Listen and let him speak to you. My grace is sufficient. Or in the words of James, my grace is greater. The final facet of this great promise is the most important word, but he gives a greater grace. What exactly is grace? Grace, defined theologically, is God's goodness to those who deserve and have earned only wrath. Let me say that again. Grace is God's goodness to those who deserve and have earned only wrath. You'll sometimes hear it defined as unmerited favor. And that's okay as far as it goes, but Grace is really more than that. You see, it's not merely undeserved favor. It's undeserved favor to those who deserve exactly the opposite. But what is favor? Well, the dictionary defines favor this way. It's the state of being held in friendly or favorable regard. You see, in relationships, the word favor describes one person's attitude toward another. If that person has a positive attitude, it's called favor. It means to approve, to like, to kindly regard, to show kindness toward. Think about that for a moment. God has a positive disposition and attitude toward those who have earned eternal wrath, and he treats us as the special objects of his favor. He likes us. He shows kindness toward us. He kindly regards us. We are in the state of being held in friendly or favorable regard by God himself, the very one we have offended. That is grace. Now, in the context of James 4, what kind of grace or undeserved favor do we need? We need two kinds. We need forgiving grace, forgiveness for our quarreling and our arguing, Forgiveness for living to satisfy our pleasures. Forgiveness for our spiritual adultery. So we need forgiving grace. But we also need sanctifying grace. Grace that empowers us to live in obedience and wholehearted allegiance to our God. This is so crucial to understand. You see, grace, listen carefully, grace is not a blank check to sin. 
In fact, Jude writes in his letter of ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Now, we don't use the word licentiousness very much. It's a word, really, that we get our word license from. You know what he's saying? There are people who take the grace of God and turn it into a license to sin. There's some Christians, I think, who really seem to believe the hymn revision, free from the law, oh, happy condition, sin all I want with easy remission. That's not the attitude at all. Romans chapter 6, Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How can we who died still live in it? If you're a believer in Christ, you died to sin. How can you keep on living in it as a pattern of life? You see, grace not only forgives, it also fortifies. Grace doesn't excuse us from obedience. It empowers us for obedience. The only way that you and I, in the context of James' comments here, In James chapter 4, the only way that you and I can ever stop committing spiritual adultery, the only way that we can stop living to satisfy our sinful pleasures, the only way that we can stop quarreling and arguing is through the enabling of divine grace. You see, there is a catch. God gives a greater grace, but there's a catch. It's not a work. It's called repentance. You know, when we think of grace, all of us think of John Newton. John Newton was a sailor. He was a sailor who bought and sold slaves for a living during the 1700s. He was raised by a Christian mother, but when he left home, he quickly forgot everything he'd been taught. He went on to lead a life of rank selfishness and absolute unrestrained immorality. A man of filthy language, he boasted that Brutality and rape was part of his daily life. To appease his conscience, he took pleasure in trying to convince others to turn from their Christian faith. But a turning point for John Newton came during a storm, a severe storm, when John remembered a verse that he'd memorized as a child. Parents, pour the word of God into your children. It was a warning from God in Proverbs chapter 1. It was this. Since you rejected me when I called, and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh at your disaster when calamity overtakes you like a storm. John Newton felt the weight of his guilt in the midst of that literal storm. He humbled himself before God, and he asked for mercy, and God showed him grace. Newton eventually went into the ministry where he served God for 40 years, telling others of the wonderful work that God had done for him. We remember him most, of course, for the world's most famous hymn, Amazing Grace. That hymn shows the reality, and it shows that he understood the reality, that the Christian life is from eternity past into eternity future a life of grace. At the end of his life, Newton put it this way. He says, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. But God gives a greater grace.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part eight of War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict. Tom will bring you part nine next time as he once again takes us to God's Word. But before we leave you today, here's Tom with some closing thoughts. Tom? It's important for us to understand that while God does bestow grace, greater grace, that grace is not something to take for granted, to abuse, or to use as some sort of an excuse for our sin. Instead, grace should encourage us to truly examine our hearts, to allow God through His Word to to reveal to us the patterns in our lives that displease Him and enable us to repent of those things and to pursue with our whole heart the holiness, the sanctification that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 is found solely in Jesus Christ. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.